Father, we worship You in this place. We bring glory to Your name and we thank You that You have saved us. We thank You, God, that You have demonstrated Your love for us in such a powerful and profound way that You sent Your Son to die for us when we were rebels and sinners. When we were in no way seeking after You, God, You intervened. You sought us out. You redeemed us, Lord. You pulled us out of that miry pit and set our feet upon the rock. We love You, Lord. We thank You. I thank You for my brothers and sisters here. I thank You for everyone who has come today to meet with You and to fellowship with one another. And I pray Your blessing upon the remainder of this service. Now as we turn our attention to the Word, I pray that this would be a continuation of worship. As we have worshipped You in song, now we will worship You in meditating and considering Your Holy Word. So please open our eyes, God. Open our hearts that we would behold wonderful things from Your Word and that we would be impacted, Lord, forever changed, transformed into the image of Your glorious Son. So we love You, Lord. We trust You. We praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen, amen. Alright, well, you got a handout when you came in and uh, it's a number of, of Bible verses that we'll be referencing as we go through this message. This is going to be a topical message in preparation for the Scriptures that we're going to be getting into next week, Romans chapter 9. And so I wanted you to be able to read the verses with me, and there are so many, obviously, I just knew that we wouldn't have time to flip around, so I wanted to provide those for you. Don't be, don't be too overwhelmed uh, by the amount of verses on there, and uh, it's all good. And I titled this message, God is God. God is God. It seems kind of self-evident, right? God is God, and subtitled to that is, we are not. We are not God, amen? amen. Praise God for that. And the reason why I am uh, doing this message is because Romans chapter 9, it can be a little challenging. Um, it can be a little challenging for us. There are some very difficult things in that chapter to wrap our minds around, and people can get downright offended by it. It deals with the subject of divine election. It talks about the fact that God is the potter and He has absolute right over the clay. He can do with it what He wants to do. And the clay cannot say, why have you made me this way? It talks about Pharaoh from Exodus, whom God hardened. It talks about Jacob and Esau, how before they were even born, God had already said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And so those are very difficult things for us to wrap our minds around or to grapple with, and that's something that we will do in depth next week. But for today, I wanted to start talking about the issue of God's sovereignty, that God is God, that we are not. And you know, the reason why this can be offensive to us is because unfortunately, I think oftentimes, we demand that God answer to us. That's kind of a bold statement. Let me just say this. I'm going to say kind of some bold and shocking things today. And I want to say it with as much grace and love as I can, with a smile on my face, if possible. Um, you know, I, the, sometimes the Word can be offensive to our natural selves, you know. And sometimes our feet get stepped on and it's not easy for us. But the messenger should not be offensive, and so it's not my desire or my intention to be offensive, but we need to hear the truth. Amen? We need to hear it. We need to be open to it. 
We need to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to it. We don't want to try to twist it or turn it into something that's more palatable. We have to be very open and honest with what the Word of God says. And so that's my intention today. So as I said, oftentimes we demand that God answer to our sense of right. And sometimes we feel like there's a disconnect there. If we were God, we wouldn't do that. What's amazing to me is that if you have any sense of right or justice in you, that is God-given, and that we were created in the image of God. That is the, the very reason why there's something in you that yearns or longs for justice. So do you think that that which God gives you somehow He does not fulfill? Like somehow God has given you a sense of justice and God Himself would not be just? It's one of the things that, that we have to consider. And furthermore, we ourselves are sin-tainted. Our nature, our thinking, our hearts are tainted by sin. And so for us to stand in judgment of a perfectly holy, righteous, good, and just God is insanity, is it not? But so oftentimes we have a propensity to do just that. We demand that God aligns with our standard of right and justice. We may call God into question, the created thing calling the Creator into account. Pure insanity. We may impugn God's character or malign His motives, thinking that if I were God, I wouldn't do that or I would do it this way or do it that way. I've heard it said it would be better to say there is no God than to malign His character or suggest that God were in some way grotesque or, or ugly. Um, it would be better to say there is no God. It would be less of an offense to God. But you know, the bottom line is, in our sinful humanity, we treat God like He should be like us. That's what we do. We think God should be like us. Psalm 50, verse 21, says, These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. So God is not like us. His ways are not our ways. They are higher than our ways. They are unsearchable. We can't understand what God is up to and what God is all about because He is God and we are not. We try to make God into our image. That's what idolatry is. And the, the idolatry that was so prevalent in the Old Testament and that still goes on around much of the world today, carving little figurines into the image of this God that this person has created, that this person would serve. Addressing that in Psalm 115, verse 3, it says this, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So we have a tendency to try to make God in our own image. And these pagan idolaters would take this, this wood or this clay or this metal and they would fashion it in such a way that it looked an awfully lot like who? Like them. He said, you give it eyes, though it cannot see. You give it ears, though it cannot hear. Feet, though it cannot walk. And you become like the idol that you create. You become deaf, dumb, blind, mute. Such is the case when we try to create a God in our image. We try to bring God down and elevate ourselves and put ourselves in the place of God. That is idolatry 
God hates it. And it is crippling to the individual who tries to do such a thing. So may it not be said of us. May we never try to stand in judgment of God. May we never try to tell God how God ought to do what He does. You know why? Because God is God and what? We are not. We are not. Praise God for that. You know, I remember one time years ago, I was kind of a new believer, and I was attending a church, this particular church. It was a, a very large church. And uh, I was sitting there, and this church really put a lot of emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Talked an awful lot about God being in control, even in matters of salvation. And so I don't even really remember what the pastor was saying necessarily, but uh, I remember all of a sudden a guy stood up in the middle of the congregation and said, is this what you're saying about God? And he kind of spelled it out. He said, because if that is how God is, I cannot worship that God. And I just remember thinking, that, that is a bold, bold thing to do. First off, don't any of you get any ideas in here, by the way. <laughs> but that's a bold thing to say. That's a bold thing to think. You know, I, I can understand unbelievers who reject God outright to have that, that, that mentality or that kind of thinking. But for Christians who have submitted themselves to the truth of God in His Word... To, to stand in judgment of God and say, you know what, God, I can't, I can't understand this, I can't handle this, and if this is the case, I can't worship You. Man, that is some scary stuff. And I would never want to think that way or act that way, and sometimes I think without realizing it that we do. We do. And so we have to be so very careful about that. Because the bottom line is, God is God. There is no one like Him. He does not answer to us. He does not answer to us. So in other words, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And so that's really the crux of this message. And I'm going to be talking about different ways in which God exercises His sovereignty. And I'll talk about what sovereignty is. And I'm going to talk about how God is sovereign in His nature. He is sovereign for His pleasure. He is sovereign in His purposes. He is sovereign for His glory. He is sovereign in trials. He is sovereign in sanctification. He is sovereign in His blessings towards us and all of the reasons why that is so absolutely wonderful so absolutely wonderful that God is in control and we'll close with a list of 10 reasons why it is so wonderful that God is sovereign and why God is in control praise God that he's in control and we are not Amen. you know I, I'm so grateful that God is on the throne and God's will is going to be done despite me when I start thinking about my my abilities my propensities it's, it's, uh, it, can drive, it can drive one to despair. But when you think about God being in charge, God being in control, God being sovereign, it really elevates me to a higher place of praise and worship and gratitude and humility. And we'll, we'll talk about those kinds of things. So sovereignty. It's a word that you may hear me use quite a bit. It's a word that you may hear quite a bit. What exactly does that word mean? Well, I'm going to give you a few definitions here. So, some different definitions I kind of pulled together. None of these are, are original with me. And so it says, The sovereignty of God is the Christian teaching that God is the supreme authority and all things are under His control. Uh, God's sovereignty is defined as His absolute right to do all things according to His own good pleasure. God has the right. Another definition, God has the rightful authority the freedom, the wisdom, and the power to bring about everything that He intends to happen. And therefore, everything He intends to come about does come about. 
which means God's plans governs all things. God is sovereign. Another one, basically God's sovereignty means that He is the supreme ruler who eminently and personally rules over all the affairs of the universe. And this includes our personal lives, both as individuals and as a local body of believers. God's sovereignty is a place of rest for the child of God, as well as a cause for worship. So this idea of God's sovereignty, uh, one of the things I love about it is He's sovereign in the affairs of men and women. He is intimately involved in our lives, day to day, large things, small things. World history on the grand scale, all the way down to the smallest details of each individual per, uh, life, God is sovereign. Jeremiah 23, verse 23, it says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? God is near and God is far. God is involved in the little things in our life, but God is also very much involved in the grand things of this whole world over all of human history. And this is, this is uh, very counter to the idea of deism. Maybe you've heard of deism. And this is, this is the idea that God indeed created all things and then He, he stepped back and removed Himself from it. In a sense, He, he kind of wound everything up, let go of it, and is totally uninvolved, detached. And so that is deism. This right here is, is the very opposite of that. God's sovereignty. He's very much involved. He's very much in control. In the big things and the little things. He says, am I not a God who is near and far off? Yes, He is. So Isaiah 46, verse 9, says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. So God does what He does because He is who He is. God is God. And so He can do what He wants to do. That is His nature. He is sovereign. Because He is God, He does what He does. He is God. There is no other. He is sovereign over human history and future events. He's not subject to those things. Understand that. God is not reactionary. He doesn't say, oops, I didn't know that was going to happen. How am I going to respond to this now? God knows all things. He set things into motion. He declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that have not yet come to pass. God is outside of time and space, and He is in control of all of these things. He's not surprised by them. He doesn't react to them. There's never a time when God has to panic or go to a plan B. And sometimes we may think that way. Sometimes we act that way. Our propensity is to freak out when things don't go the way that we expected. Am I right? And so we have plan A, B, C, D, and we're, we're real quick to try to figure this out. But God's not surprised when you mess up, if you fall into sin, God's not surprised that you messed up or fell into sin. He already knew that was going to happen. Whatever the case may be, if you lose your job or, or whatever kind of trial or calamity that might befall you, some sort of sickness that you might, might uh, have, unfortunately, you know what? God was not surprised by that. God is not panicking. 
God is not shocked. God is able to minister to you right in the middle of that. God is able to provide. God is able to work all those things together for good because God is sovereign. It is who He is by His very nature. Well, next, God is not only sovereign, but He's sovereign for His own pleasure. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Now, this is in the context of idol worshipers, as I had already mentioned. You know, idols, these are earthly inanimate objects summoned to do the worshiper's pleasure. That is not God. That is not God. God is on the throne. God is in heaven. And He exists to do His own pleasures. God does not exist to do our pleasures. Philippians 2, verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to do, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. God is sovereign over our desires and abilities. This is an interesting verse here. We're told that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to save ourselves or work, out, uh, work godliness out in our lives in such a way that we would be saved. That's not what this is saying. It's basically saying exercise godliness within your life. You've got to work at it. You've got to work hard at cultivating and developing devotion to God and godliness in your lives. But then he says this, it's God who works in you to will and to do. So God gives us the desire to obey Him and He gives us the ability to execute such desire. So God is working in us both to desire and to do. And why? Why is God doing this? It says, for His own good pleasure. For His own good pleasure. God is pleased when we desire to do that which is uh, honoring to Him. God is pleased when we love Him and obey Him and serve Him. And so God gives us the desire and the ability to carry that out and it's for His good pleasure. His good pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 It says, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. It's pretty, pretty clear, right? God's counsel will stand and He's going to do what pleases Him. You know, we have to be careful not to treat God like He exists to do our pleasure. Am I right? We have to be careful not to treat God like He owes us something. It, it can be subtle, but I think sometimes we can do this. And sometimes you've got people out there who teach this stuff. I'll give you an example. Joel Osteen, I'm sure many of you have heard that name. He's a, a, a word of faith prosperity preacher. He says this, when you're in difficult times, it's good to remind God what you've done. God, I've kept my family in church. God, I've gone the extra mile to help others. I've given, I've served, I've been faithful. In your own time of need, you should call in all those seeds that you have sown. So I have done good, and now, God, you owe me. And let me remind you, God, of all of these things that I have done for you. Is that not insanity? And, and so, well, let's continue on with that. If that is the case, then, what about all the times we don't honor God? What about all the times that we don't obey? All the times when we don't do the things that we know we ought to do? Does God owe us something for that? 
And would we say that our good outweighs our bad? I mean, can we just be real for a second? From the time we wake up to the time we go to bed, if you kept a running counter, I'd be scared to know what that balance would be. I don't want to know. And I certainly don't want to put God to the test on that one. And so to think that God owes me for my good would say that God owes me for my bad. But the reality is, God doesn't owe me for anything that I do good. He doesn't, owe, he doesn't have to pay me back for any good deed that I have done. That is it's just simply not the case. But sometimes we can kind of fall into that trap. And that's legalism. That's, that is the purest form of legalism. If I do everything right, if I keep all the rules, then I have earned God's favor, I have earned God's love, I have earned God's provision, and that is simply a lie. We will never have God in our... He will never be indebted to us. God doesn't answer to us. God doesn't owe us anything. Well, next, God is sovereign for His great name. God is sovereign for His own glory. And when we talk about God's name, we're talking about His reputation and His authority. Oftentimes, you know, you'll hear Jesus say, if you pray in my name, and we'll pray in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? It's kind of like a, an officer of the law. What gives them the authority to make that arrest? It's not that individual, but there's been this delegated authority that is given to them by, by the government that is in place, that is ruling in accordance with the laws that they have set up. And so it is based on that authority. And so when we talk about God's name, we're talking about God's reputation, who He is, and God's authority. Well, in Isaiah 48, verse 9, it says, For my name's sake I will defer my anger, and for my praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. How should you, how, uh, for how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. So God had made some promises to Israel. And Israel had defiled His name. They had polluted the land. And God took them out of the land. God chastened His people, rebuked His people. But God was going to restore His people back to the land. Not because they were deserving. They did not deserve that restoration. But God was going to be gracious to them. Why? Because His name was on the line. For His great name. For His glory. And that really is the Gospel, guys. Uh, we're not saved because there's anything inherently good in us that deserves to be saved. It's for God's glory. For His great name. Because He is a loving God and He is mighty to save. And He demonstrated that love by sending His Son to die for us when we were sinners. This is a love that we cannot understand. It's a love that we cannot fathom. But that is the love of God and He did it for His great name because He is glorious and He is glorious to be praised. Alright, so God said, I'm going to hold back my burning anger for my own name. God refined them in the furnace of affliction for His own name. For His own glory. He said, I will not give my glory to another. This is for the Christian, guys. This is so important. This is why we live. To make God's name great. To bring Him glory. I talked about the Westminster, uh, Westminster Catechism. The very first question it asked is, what is the chief end of man? Why do we exist? Anybody remember what it was? We exist 
to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the chief end of man. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God is very concerned about His glory. And when we talk about glory, there's really three different aspects to it. There is intrinsic glory. That is, God is what He is. He is glorious in His essence, in His nature, in His being, in His character. And nothing can take away from that. God is glorious, period. He always has been. He always will be. But then there's ascribed glory. That's when we give Him the glory due His name. When we praise Him, when we thank Him, when we sing to Him, when we obey Him. That is ascribed glory. It's amazing that God even lets us do that. We're not even worthy to tell God that He's worthy. And then there is reflected glory. That is when we demonstrate the kindness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, and other people see that in us and they see Christ in us. They see God in us. They see the glory of God reflected through us. And He is honored. He is praised. Now God is very concerned for His glory. God is jealous even for His glory. This idea of jealousy it usually has a negative connotation with us, does it not? But I will say this. Any husband in here who is not jealous for his wife, there's a real problem there. A real problem. If I ever caught a man flirting with my wife, he would feel the wrath of Rob. <laughs> Instantly. Because I'm jealous for my wife. I love her and nobody else has the right to flirt with her or try to woo her. I have won her. You got that? <laughs> So that is good godly jealousy. But then there is a, a, you know, forgive me, there is a psycho jealousy. And uh, I remember one time in Tennessee, I was sitting outside of this, uh, I don't know if they have big lots out here in the West, maybe it's a southern thing, but we had big lots and I was sitting out front and this elderly guy was sitting there and he started talking to me and he said, yeah, I just, uh, just got a divorce. And I said, really, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. He said, yeah, my wife, man, she was just getting too controlling. I'm like, really? And he starts telling me about it. He said, she even got to the point where she put a, uh, a log in by the front door. So I had to log in and log out as I was coming and going. Where I was going, how long I was going to be going. And he's like, I just can't take it anymore. I was like, man, I don't, don't blame you on that one. And so that is psycho jealousy, okay? And so that's the kind of jealousy that we're like, okay, that, that's not good. Well... Well, God has a godly and just jealousy for His glory because God is glorious. He has the, the right to demand glory. We are not glorious. And then when we refuse to give God glory or we even demand glory for ourselves because so often we're living for the glory of our names, right? That is despicable to God. He hates that. God is jealous for His own glory. He's sovereign over His glory. He does what He does for His glory. Ezekiel 36 Verse 21 says, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. So you just see this over and over. God does what He does ultimately for His name's sake. Here's, here's a very classic one right here. Psalm 23. Psalm 23, 1-3, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. 
for His name. I wonder how many times we've read that and glossed over that. So we enjoy many provisions from the Good Shepherd. Many provisions. First off, the Shepherd Himself. The Lord our God. He is our Shepherd and we enjoy Him. There is no lack. We shall not want. Under the Good Shepherd's guidance and care, we lack nothing. We have peace. We're told that He makes the, the sheep to lie down in green pastures. You know, if you've never read the book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, I would encourage you to read that. It's a guy who had been a, a shepherd for many years, and he writes a book on this psalm. And, and you'll see this psalm in, in a very fresh way, I assure you. I would encourage you to get that book. You know, the thing about sheep is, is that they're, um, they're very antsy um, and really quick to, to get anxiety even. And so the idea that they would lay down says that they are totally at rest, at, at peace. And that they lay down in, in green pastures. You know, the thing about sheep is they will not really roam. They'll stay right in one spot until they absolutely uh, decimate that area until all of the, the um, greenery is gone. And then it becomes... Um, contaminated uh, with um, you know, disease and, and different things like that, and the, the sheep can get sick. But we're told here that the Good Shepherd leads them into green pastures and that they rest, they lay down in that, that place. He says that uh, He leads me beside still waters. You know, again, same idea. Sheep won't drink from a raging torrent. Uh, they would be too scared. So there's water there, but they won't drink from it. And I mean, I, I guess I kind of get, I don't know if they're thinking this way, but I'm thinking you've got a giant cotton ball there. If he falls into this raging torrent, it's like, and then he goes flying down the river. And so they're, you know, they're scared, they're antsy, but they're led by still waters. And then he says that my, he restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness. So no lack, there's peace, they are led, there is rest for their souls, there is righteousness. And all of this is for the namesake of the shepherd. Ultimately, for the glory of the name of the shepherd. You know, when you have the condition of the sheep, says a lot about the shepherd. And so you have uh, various shepherds with their flocks, and they can see that this flock is very mangy, very sickly, scattered and torn. says a lot about the shepherd. But our good shepherd takes great care that we are at peace, that we are well fed, that we drink from quiet, still waters, all for His name's sake. Amen? All for His glory, for His reputation. God is very concerned about His name and His glory. He is sovereign in that. Next, He is sovereign in His purposes. God is sovereign in His purposes. Isaiah 46:11, Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God has His own prerogatives, and He is able to providentially bring them about. And that's another one of those words, providence. God's providence is amazing. It's His ability to really supernaturally work things in such a way that they line up in a way that we couldn't have ever really written that script or or thought that up. And we see so many stories in the Bible of, of God's providence. Joseph being one of the biggest ones. When he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. His brothers sold him into slavery because they hated him. But through God's providence, 
he rose to the second highest rank in Egypt and God used him for the salvation of many. That's God's providence. And God is sovereignly able to providentially work things together. We're told here He calls a bird of prey and a man from a far country. Um, commentators say that this is talking about King Cyrus. You know, God called uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in to take His people, Israel, out of their land for their disobedience, for their idolatry, for defiling the land in God's name as they did. But then God had Nebuchadnezzar overthrown by King Cyrus from Persia. And then when King Darius came in after Cyrus, he began to send the people back to the land. And they came back with Ezra and Nehemiah. You recall the story. They rebuilt the temple and, and the wall. And so we see how God moves sovereignly over even the kings of the earth. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. They do his bidding. Ungodly kings and godly kings alike, they are subservient to him. makes no difference. He will use them for his purposes, like it or not. I love this proverb, God turns the heart of the king like rivers of water. And this is something that we cling to, is it not? Believing that God can move in the hearts of men and women. We talk an awful lot about free will and we have the freedom, but the reality is God transcends that. God has the ability, and, and if He didn't, why pray? Why pray that you know, our teacher would, would uh, be gracious with a paper that we turn in? Something as trivial as that or something as big as the salvation of a loved one. If we did not believe that God were able or willing to intervene into that matter and to move in that person's heart, then why pray? But we do. We pray because we do believe in the, the sovereignty of God. We do believe that God will do what God wants to do. And we have boldness in prayer. We have confidence. And that's why we cry out to God for so many different situations. Because we believe that God is sovereign, God is able, and that God will. He will do all of those things that are pleasing in His sight. Job 42.2 I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. With God, all things are possible. God can do what He wills. God will do all that He wills. And nothing can stop God from doing what He wills. Not even us. Not me, not you. God has a plan. God has a purpose and a will for glory. And He's going to execute that. I just want to align myself with it, don't you? I want to be used by God. I want to joyfully run uh, and, and let God's sovereignty be the wind that's pushing me. I don't want to be dragged kicking and screaming, right? God is sovereign over trials. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren... So we know this story. Um, Jesus tells Peter that Satan had asked permission to sift him, to sift him like wheat. And Jesus didn't say, no, you may not. Um, God didn't say, no, 
He said, instead, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that when it's all over that you would return and strengthen your brothers. So what we see here, guys, is we have an enemy of our souls. I think most of us in here know that, right? We have an enemy of our souls. His name is Satan. He hates God and he hates anything that's created in the image of God. And what would that be? Us. And he especially hates anyone who names the name of Christ. Then you really have a bullseye on your back. And so that is just a reality and that we have this enemy and God is able to use even him and his hatred and his plotting to work out things in our lives, namely sanctification. God is able to use Satan. God does use Satan to advance his own cause. That's amazing, is it not? That's the power of God. He can do that. And so that's exactly what happened with Peter. Because what do we know about Peter? Peter was high and lifted up. And the night before Jesus was to be betrayed and crucified, when Jesus told the group that this was going to happen, that he was going to be abandoned and betrayed, what did Peter do? He stood up and said, Not I, Lord. All of these other guys might leave you, but I will not. I would never do that. In fact, I will die for you. I will die with you. That was Peter. But then we know what happened. He didn't, did he? He ran out. He ran out and he, he denied that he even knew the Lord three times and he was crushed to the core. And then when Jesus rose again from the grave there in John 21, they met on the shore. And Jesus asked him these very searching questions. He said, Simon, do you love me? Now, if you're just reading the, the English, you might miss this. But in the Greek, Jesus is using different words for love. And so he says, Peter, do you agape me? And that is that supreme sacrificial love. Well, Peter says, Lord, you know I, I phileo you. That's like a brotherly love, a uh, camaraderie. And so Jesus says, Peter, would you die for me? Do you love me that much? Do you love me with supreme self-sacrificial love? And Peter says, Lord, you know I like you. You know you're my buddy. I mean, he couldn't say it anymore. He couldn't bring himself to that place. God did that. But then he was restored. He was restored by Jesus. Jesus said, feed my sheep. He was filled by the Holy Spirit and He was used mightily for God. And that trial was a big part of what made Peter humble and usable and an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. God does that. But you know, then there's Isaiah 45.7. It says, God speaking, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Sometimes it's God who brings calamity. You know, we always blame the devil for everything. And some people can really get a little too extreme with that. Um, you know, especially where I'm from in the South, man, everything is the devil, that old devil. And there's the, uh, it's really a cultural thing. So you're talking to people that aren't even really believers, but they kind of grew up in a, in a, a society that was conservative and and considered itself religious, and you're talking to them about things and whatever hardship they're going through. So obviously something that they brought on, them, on themselves, but guess what? It's that old devil. That old devil. And Christians can be like that. It's like you look down and see your shoes untied, and it's like, the devil. You know? <laughs> and so we can get extreme with that. And the reality is sometimes God did that. Sometimes God brings about calamity. And he says that I form light and I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. 
And so we recognize that every good gift that we have comes from God. There's no question about that. But sometimes even the hardships and the difficulties, the trials, the pains, those may also come from God. We need not be so quick to blame everything on the devil and we need not be so quick to try to get out from underneath it or to try to circumvent what God is trying to do in our lives. Because oftentimes when God brings difficulty, hardship, calamity, it's for a reason. That leads us to the next point. God is sovereign over our sanctification. God is trying to work Christ-likeness into us. And this was all part of His plan from eternity past. He had this in mind before creation. You know, we think that the sin in the garden, God made everything good, and then man messed up, and then God said, oh man, I wasn't planning on that. What am I going to do now? i got a plan. That's not how it worked. Before creation, before time and space, from eternity past, God was sovereign over our sanctification. It says this, Romans 8:28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. God is able sovereignly to cause all things to work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That is us, that is believers, Christians. And what is that good that God is doing? He's able to take all the things that we do, success, failures, mistakes, things that we learn. He takes all of that. And what is the good that He is able to bring about from it? Conforming us into the image of Jesus. That's what God is doing. That is what God is about. That is His mission. Jesus is building His church and sanctifying His Christians. That is the mission. That is what God is doing here and now in, in this time in the world and throughout church history. Conforming us into the likeness of Jesus. We were predestined unto that. That was God's calling for us. Which leads us to our final point here. God is sovereign in spiritual blessings. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glory, the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. So God is sovereign over spiritual blessing. That list continues on there in Ephesians 1, but He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And it goes on to list those blessings. And we'll talk about that. But I just want to start with God is concerned with heavenly blessings, spiritual blessings. So often we are consumed with and living for temporal blessings. The here and now, not the there and then. And we are laboring to no end, sacrificially working, so that we can build temporal kingdoms and comfort and security and pleasure here and now. But God is concerned with spiritual blessing, heavenly blessings. And we're told that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Praise God, nothing can take that away. Nothing can take that away. 
And God has, God has secured that for us. So He is the initiator of heavenly blessings in Christ. And one of them is that we have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. The Bible clearly teaches that before time began, God chose us in Him. We've been predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus. You know, I've talked about judicial, a judicial pardoning that we experience. And it talks a lot about that throughout Romans. That we have been justified. That we are no longer guilty in His sight. We've been declared righteous. But He didn't just stop there. He didn't just pardon our sins and then send us on our way. He adopted us into His family. He made us beloved sons and daughters, children. So He's no longer the judge that we have to give an account to. He's no longer the judge that has declared us righteous and has nothing to do with us anymore. He is the judge who has forgiven us and who has become our Father and who loves us as a child, as a son, as a daughter. And now we have this most special relationship with our Heavenly Father. We've been predestined to that. Foreordained. Before time and space. Ephesians clearly says it that God called us to that. And we're going to be talking more about that next week as we get into Romans chapter 9. And it deals with God's election, God's divine sovereign election. And so I'm just trying to prime the pump a little bit here before we even get into that. But it's very clear and Ephesians talks about that. And this is a, a sovereign blessing of God. We're told that we have been accepted in the Beloved. I love that. Jesus is the Beloved. God's Beloved. God's own Son. And we have been ushered into the family of God through the Beloved, through the sacrifice of God's own Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Jesus, God's beloved Son, lived the life that we could not live. He died the death and suffered the wrath on that cross that we deserved. So that if we would put our trust in Him for salvation, we would, not, we would not perish, we would not suffer under eternal agony and punishment of hell, but instead we would be ushered into the family of God as beloved sons and daughters of God. We would have a relationship with God here and now. And that is one of the greatest blessings of Christianity. That is the blessing, is knowing God and growing in our knowledge of God and walking with Him in love, obeying Him, serving Him, sharing Him. That's what it's all about. And that's been secured to us through the good news of Jesus Christ, through the Gospel. And then we have heavenly blessings. One day we will be with Him in perfection and glory and we will worship Him in splendor and, and there will be no distractions, no, no sin tainted worship we will worship him the way that he deserves to be worshiped we will worship him in glory and that has been secured to us through the good news of jesus christ through the gospel if you put your trust in him and repent of your sins that is yours in jesus believe on the name of the lord jesus and you will be saved trust him for salvation follow him that is the gospel that is the good news and we're told here that we were predestined to that predestined to that closing thoughts closing thoughts realizing that God is sovereign that God is in control that our God is a big God and that God is going to do all that he pleases and that we can't even stop that 
It ought to create some things in us. It ought to provoke us. It ought to move us. And I would say first, it moves us to worship. Worship. God is a big God. He is not subservient. He is not reactionary. God does what He wills. He does what He pleases. He alone is God. There is no other. And it ought to cause us to to be in awe and reverence of this holy and majestic and mighty and sovereign God. Sometimes we make God small. That's just the reality. We, We try to make God small. God answers to us. And God exists to do our pleasure. And God is like a genie. And and we call upon Him to do our bidding in our time of need. But God is, is not that. He's so much bigger. He is above all things. And created all things. And for Him all things exist and consist and are back to Him. We are to honor Him in all things. And so we are to have a high view of God to look to Him with love and fear, with adoration, with worship. It ought to lead us to gratitude. Gratitude. Thank You, God, that You would save me, the chief of sinners. I was in no way deserving. I did nothing to earn it. I could not earn it. The only thing I really deserved was punishment. Yet You, God, loved me. You loved me. You poured Your affection out on me in the person of Your Son and saved me. Thank You. We ought to be a people above all others who are grateful. Amen? This ought to humble us. We ought to be humbled by God's sovereignty. And I I see this. You know, when when people really kind of see themselves as, as really a bigger part of the equation, you know, I chose to do the right thing. I chose God. Why didn't you? Why don't you? You know, they have no compassion for people who are bound up in sin and iniquity. I just stopped doing it. Why can't you? Just stop. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That person who thinks that is deceived. They're deceived first and foremost because they were no more able to save themselves or to overcome that sin than the person that they're talking to. But then also there's this arrogance that comes along with it when you think that it was more your doing than it was God's doing. In reality, we should be humbled. God, I could not save myself. God, I could not overcome this sin. God, I could not, but You did. What I could not do for myself, You did for me by sending Your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to die and to re- uh, for me and to redeem me and to sanctify me. And I'm humbled. I'm humbled, God. I did not deserve that. I didn't deserve it, but You did it. We ought to be encouraged that in God's sovereignty, He can use even our failures. God's work will be done. His cause will be advanced. Nothing can stop it. Not even our failures. Not even our disobedience. I'm encouraged by that, guys. I am greatly encouraged to think that even in my failures and my shortcomings, God is not hindered. And God's able to use even that to advance His purpose and to work holiness out in me. Praise God for that. Boldness. We ought to have boldness in prayer. Realize who you're praying to. Realize that God is able. God can do whatever God wants to do. And you are calling on an almighty God who is mighty to save. He is mighty to rescue. He is mighty to provide. 
He is mighty to lead. He is mighty to give wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We ought to have boldness in our prayer because we're praying to a supreme, sovereign God. Amen? So let there be boldness in your prayer. Be confident in the power of prayer because it's not your prayer, it's a sovereign God. It's an awesome God that delights to answer prayer. He has invited us in through prayer. This ought to give us hope. God has the ability to save the hardest of sinners. There is no one that is beyond God's reach. There is no sinner so far gone that God cannot save them. We may look at people sometimes and think, man, that, that's an impenetrable force. And with man, it's impossible. But what, with God, what? Amen. With God, all things are possible. With God, nothing is impossible. God is able to break and penetrate the heart of the most hardened sinner. This ought to give us assurance to know that God is going to lead us despite us if necessary. Sometimes I'm kicking and screaming. Sometimes I don't get it. Sometimes I'm fighting awfully hard for my way. But the Bible says there are many plans in a man's heart. But what? The Lord directs his steps. The Lord directs his steps. So you can plan your way all you want to. But God directs your steps. And I have always loved that because I have many plans, don't you? Many plans. And I don't always know what the, what the right plan is. And I don't know if any of the plans are right. But here's what I know. God will direct my steps. And I have assurance in that. So God is going to get it done even if I'm getting in the way. And so I rest in that. I have joy. We ought to have joy. Joy that God will use us for His glory. God is going to get glory out of redeemed sinners. And I praise Him for that. My life was used for so long as an instrument of destruction in the hands of Satan, quite frankly. And when I came to a place where God opened my eyes and saved me, I thought, God, I can't take those things back. I can't go back. And I, so many of those things I cannot make right. I cannot undo. But I can be used by You now moving forward for good. You can use me to bless people, to encourage people, and that has been the cry of my heart from, from the beginning of my walk with the Lord. And I have that joy because I know that God is sovereign in that. He can do that. He can use us for His glory. It's a joyful thing. That was a very new and fresh joy for me. Realizing that God could use me. God, You would use me. And that was amazing to me. And then that Ephesians 2 where it talks about we are His, his workmanship, that we're literally, it's poema in the Greek, and it means poem. So we are God's poem. We are His work of art to bring glory to Him. And he has, he has given good works that we should walk in. He has created good works that were already set out for us to walk in. God was sovereign in that. Confidence. We have confidence that God is going to get us over that finish line. Amen? If it was up to me to get myself over the finish line, I would be very depressed. I would be very frightened. I am saved by grace and I am kept by grace. God sovereignly saved me and God will sovereignly keep me to the very end. You know, I, I just have to be very real with you guys. I, I, I have very little confidence in myself. 
And I, I hope that that confidence continues to de- to that confidence in myself continues to decrease the older that I get. You know, because we have too much confidence. Self confidence is a problem. The world thinks that we don't have enough of it. Oh, we got way too much of it. That's the issue. I want God confidence. You know, I, I just think I said this a couple weeks ago. If I could lose my salvation, I'm pretty sure I would lose my salvation. And so I'm counting on God's sovereignty to get me across the line. And I have confidence, not in my abilities, but in the ability of the sovereign God and His purpose. And then lastly, love. We have love for the sovereign God who called us into this most glorious salvation. Amen? It ought to drive us to a deeper place of love. Praise You, God. We worship You. We love You. Thank You that You marked us out. That You saved us, that you have secured us, and that you will see us through to the end. It ought to cause us to go to a deeper place of love for God. We love because He first loved us, right? So we'll close right there. Uh, Joe, you got a song for us? Okay. Joe's going to close us out, and uh, let, me, let me just pray. Father, we love you, and uh, God, your will be done period. You are God and we are not. You are supreme. You are the supreme authority and ruler over all things. You are sovereign in power. And we love You, Lord, and we trust You. And we we surrender to that. We submit to that. God, please, have Your way in us. Lead us, Lord. Lead us. We are the clay saying to to the potter, make us, Lord. Use us however You will for Your glory for Your purpose, for Your pleasure. We praise You, Lord. We surrender to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.